Hey, it's Maggie Sibbett, Curious City's digital and engagement producer. This is Quench, a queer party hosted by a group called Small World Collective. And tonight they brought this traveling party to a bar in Chicago's Fulton Market District. There's a DJ booth at the front, there's performances, dancing, and a lot of really well-dressed people, most of them black and brown. And the reason I'm here, well, part of the reason I'm here, is that a while back we got a question from a listener named Marina who wanted to know more about parties like this one. My question was, where do queer women hang out in the city? Are we just like hanging out at Hollywood Beach? Like, what are we doing? And Marina is specifically interested in queer spaces that put people of color at the center. I am a Latinx person and like visibly brown. My partner is a, a Latinx person, visibly brown. And so I think also having those spaces is important to us and for us. And so like not having to be in like all white spaces, like it would be ideal. If you're not part of that community yourself, you might be thinking like there have got to be places for queer women to go in this city, but there really aren't. There's basically one bar called Nobody's Darling, which opened last year to a lot of fanfare. But over the years, queer folks, especially queer women of color, have created what they call traveling parties or pop-up parties. The need came out of not enough consistent and accessible spaces for black queer folks in Chicago. The traveling party is something that is rooted in a need that mostly black queer folks have. Coming up, we revisit a story from last year about the history of queer traveling parties and the critical role they've played for queer people of color over the decades. The story recently received the Excellence in QPOC Coverage Award from the Association of LGBTQ Plus Journalists. Traveling parties as places of joy and resistance. That's coming up after the break. Curious City is supported by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash CuriousCity today to get 10% off your first month. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're all about traveling queer parties in Chicago. So we reached out to Ari Mejia. Hello, hello. Check, check. She's the community and storytelling producer over at our sister station, Vocalo. All right, we're sounding good. All right, are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Outside of Ari's qualifications, she's queer and Latinx, as am I. So this question from Marina really hit us. Ari also hosted and produced a podcast on queer Chicago history. Welcome to Unboxing Queer History. It was for the Gerberhart Library and Archives, the largest circulating LGBTQ library in the Midwest. 
She's a huge history buff. Today's episode takes us inside the archive of a bookstore that not only changed the Chicago queer scene in the late 80s through the 90s. So she wanted to tell us not just what's going on today with traveling parties for queer folks, but also how we got here. Hey, Ari. Hey, Maggie. So Marina, our question asker, is wondering where queer women hang out today in Chicago. Yeah. You know, there's basically one bar that Marina has actually been to called Nobody's Darling, which you mentioned that opened in 2021 by two black lesbians. But Marina, like a lot of us, is like, okay, that's it? And of course, queer women have been creating community for themselves in all kinds of ways. There's queer sports leagues. Tons of informal gatherings, parties, meetups. But when it comes to spaces organized by and for queer women here, the short answer to Marina's question is, these traveling parties, they happen all over the city, and there's a really important history behind that. I'm really excited to hear more about that. But one question that came to mind for me, even before we get there, is, you know, we have North Halstead, formerly Boys Town, right? A neighborhood known for its gay bars. Did you find that there was ever, like, a similar neighborhood for queer women? So, yes. A lot of people might be familiar with Andersonville and North Halstead as places where a lot of queer women hung out during the 70s, 80s, 90s. But the experience for women was really different than it was for men, even at queer-friendly bars, especially if we're talking about queer women of color. So would they, would they like, allow women in gay bars? For sure, but it was more like lesbians were uncomfortable. The culture of the places, who it was for, how they advertised, the DJs they booked. Plus, even at the few lesbian bars that did exist at the time, there was a lot of discrimination based on race. So people of color were fed up with what was going on, how they were treated. What did they do about it? There are these two black lesbians who are foundational to the history of traveling parties in Chicago. And I went to South Shore to one of their houses to talk with them about it. So we're here. Their names are Vera Washington. And I'm a Capricorn. And Pat McCombs. Aquarius. So back in the 70s, Pat and Vera hung out at CK's. Later, it became Augie and CK's, this really well-known lesbian bar in Lakeview. And they told me that there were all kinds of ways that lesbian bars at the time tried to limit the number of black women they allowed inside. My ex-lover, she and I went to CK's one night and her ID had expired. That's Vera. So she showed them her military ID and they told her she couldn't use it. This is a United States government military ID. But they let me in. They will let, you can go in, but she can't. That's how they did it. Mm-hmm. If a group of us came, let's say four of us, two would get in. So, of course, you're leaving, mm-hmm. you know. So they knew what they were doing. And this really resonates with a lot of other black women's experiences at CK's. This whole practice was known unofficially as the 2ID or 3ID rule. It was a way to keep the entry of people of color at a minimum. Black people being the most affected by this. Who walks around with their birth certificates? You know. You know what I'm saying? Did white people have to have more than one? Probably not. Most of the time, I'm sure they didn't. didn't. I've seen some just go straight through. Many times. Yeah. That's really messed up. And it's, like, so sneaky, too. Exactly. And, okay, CK's is not around today. 
But this practice of demanding multiple IDs, as well as other discriminatory practices, was very well known and well documented. And so I got mad and I said, we got to do something about it. Let's picket that bar. And so that's when I came up with the organization, Black Lesbians Discrimination Investigative Committee. That committee name sounds very official. Extremely official. Okay, and what happens next? Because I know you talked to Pat and Vera for a really specific reason, right? Yeah, exactly. So really the reason I talked to Pat and Vera was because of what happened after these protests and actions. They basically decided, you know what, we're going to create our own spaces. We're going to throw our own parties out of this need. We are party promoters. A traveling female social club. They ended up organizing this party called Executive Suite. Oh my God, I love that name. (laughs) I know, me too. It's so good. And of course, that was right up my alley. Because I was doing parties on the South Side with another group. And early on, Pat was out promoting the parties and asked Vera to come help her sell tickets. Vera sold so many tickets, I said, dog, why don't we be partners? And so from 82 on... It's really Pat and Vera who are at the helm, organizing these parties around black lesbians. Some gay guys, they would follow us, but for the most part, we tried to attract women. Okay, so where exactly were they throwing these parties, right? Like knowing that most of the bars at this time were either not queer friendly, not women friendly, or were racist, or like literally all three of these things. I know. I had the same exact question. Okay. So what we did is we would dress up with briefcases. (laughs) They'd drive around and look for bars that didn't have much business. They'd come in really dressed up in skirt suits and ask to speak to the owner. And then they'd ask the owner if they could rent the bar for a night. At first, we told them we were sororities. And that we were having a party. <laughs> because we didn't want to say lesbians. And we did ask them, could we bring our own security? Because we had women security mostly. We had female DJs. So they started taking over these sort of sleepy bars around the city. At first, Executive Suite was all word of mouth. But soon after, they started sending invitations out by mail. Like handwritten each and every envelope but they still had to be covert i mean this was the 80s after all because mm. one thing you can't do with black women you can't advertise lesbian party because when we mail yeah, stuff exactly. to the houses and back then we didn't have the internet and, and all that stuff we had to mail their invitations or mail the notices to the houses and a lot of people were in the closet as well as i Fear or not so much. No, I wasn't. And as time went on, we were very specific in letting them know who we were and what we wanted. Okay, so I'm trying to imagine what an executive suite party would have been like. Like, is it just a DJ and people dancing in a dive bar? Or, like, what did it look like? So, of course, there's music and dancing. But it was really like a whole thing. Over time, they rented really nice venues. And there was food... And they told me people were dressed to the nines. And they had activities. Like games? Well, 
More like activities designed to help you meet new people and build relationships, create community. Okay, and tell me about the music. What music are they listening to? They were very explicit about that. House music, baby. House music. House music. Pat told me about this one party in River North where they were partying in a club that was literally being torn down. Like, they were in there with the DJ and everything. All the while, construction is happening. Like, gives me chills to think about. Wow, I love that. (laughs) It's so epic, right? Like, the walls are coming down around them and they're just dancing and having the time of their lives. And seriously, all the executive suite parties sounded this legendary. I like to think we had the cream of the crop parties. <laughs> Women today, still today, inbox us. Hey, Pat, how you doing? When you going to have your next party? Okay, we have to go to a break. <sighs> okay, okay. Well, when we get back, I want to tell you about this other party happening today. Part of the legacy of Executive Suite, but building on it. Can't wait. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I'd never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. We just talked about Executive Suite, the traveling party that focused on black lesbians starting in the 1980s. What did the nightlife scene look like for lesbians in Chicago after that? Yeah, so there were a number of lesbian bars in Chicago throughout the 90s, mostly on the northeast side. So these were mostly white spaces. On the whole, yes. And even these bars started disappearing in the 90s and early 2000s, mostly for economic reasons. So then suddenly everyone needs a place to go. Even lesbians who aren't black, there's a much greater need for lesbian-centered spaces. Gotcha. So basically this thing, the traveling party, that used to be relevant mainly for black lesbians suddenly becomes relevant for all queer women. Exactly. And that's why, starting around the early 2000s, we see traveling parties really blow up. There were groups all across the city that would take over a bar for a night and host parties for queer folks. And that takes us to the era we're in right now. Got it. And I know you wanted to talk to someone who's throwing parties today. Yeah, I think that history gives us the context of where we've come from and where we're going. I'm also obsessed with queer history. Like throwing a party is about a right to exist and a freedom to express that existence. I really wanted to talk to people organizing parties that don't have a permanent location, that are also traveling, and just about that desire for community and safety. And... I immediately thought of Small World Collective, the party that you were at at the beginning of this episode, right? And so I reached out to the people who started it, Tori and Jay Rice. Jay Rice, pronouns he, him, co-founder of Small World Collective, and I am a Sagittarius. Tori Rice, also co-founder of Small World Collective, and I am a Gemini. We are cultural curators. And what that looks like is we we curate culture via space activation, artists' engagement. We're also polyamorous activists. I definitely see us as a part of the lineage. This is a continuation of of queer black joy in Chicago. 
Just like Pat and Vera, their collective is about way more than just parties. Overall collective of artists working together for the liberation of Black, Brown, and Indigenous queer folks. So how did Small World get started? Like, what's their their sort of origin story? They started with this party called Energy in 2017 when they were in college. Oh, wow. It was actually during Pride Month, and they were trying to figure out where to go. But they were really having trouble finding space where they felt at home. There wasn't enough consistent spaces for queer Black people. There were no women and femme-centric spaces in Chicago. Okay, so this sounds so familiar. Right? It takes us back to our listeners' question, I think. Hey, I'm a brown Latinx person. Where can I find a space for me? And the response again, just like in the 80s with Pat and Vera, is you just got to build it. But they're getting started in 2017, right? So the moment is pretty different. Well, yes and no. We dealt with a lot of misogyny and specifically misogynoir. If you're not familiar with that term, misogynoir was coined by Black feminist Moya Bailey to describe anti-Black misogyny, discrimination against Black women. Even when we moved into a Black-owned establishment, it was still Black cis, hyper-hetero-owned establishments that we had to go in there and assert ourselves in a very particular way and hyper-assert ourselves so that we wouldn't get, you know, screwed over with either payment or anything like that. Okay, so no suits and briefcases here. No, which I see as part of the growth, right? The building upon. They came in as themselves, but with the utmost fierceness. We'd be like, okay, can we set up several meetings with you and your security? Can we also set up a meeting with your bar manager? They're like, whoa, y'all are just coming in to do a night. No, we're not just coming in to do a night. We're coming in to make intentional space for marginalized people. I am ready. Take me to energy. What is it like? You might see me at the door greeting you often. You're going to see gender-neutral bathrooms. It doesn't matter if the establishment has them or not. We make sure that when we have our parties, they're gender-neutral, so we have our own signs up there. You're probably going to see a lot of twerking. You're going to see a lot of sexiness. You're going to see Brandy, who's our chef, who comes in from St. Louis to cook tacos for everyone. So you're going to smell those tortillas in the air. House music is queer Black music, and I think we often forget what house music started as, especially here in Chicago. So it's an homage to that. When I'm shouting out Black trans folks, that's not something we hear often in spaces, not in nightlife. And it's so strategic and it's so it means so much to us because Chicago is a place of queer Black joy. It really makes sense to me, actually, like why this party is called energy. So much of it, it just sounds like being there is so much about this collective energy, this kind of almost spiritual experience. Yes, definitely. And they talk about it in those terms. We're at church right now. We are at literal church right now. <laughs> and, and there's always a moment where the energy takes something like the Holy Ghost. So do Jay and Tori see themselves as continuing the work of Executive Suite? I wondered the same thing. It's it's interesting. I mean, you've got folks like, you know, Pat McCombs, who's been making space for queer Black women forever. And she's been to a few energies. And, you know, that's that's... That's my that's my baby there. Ah, did you tell them that you were talking to Pat? I didn't. I see it as them understanding what Executive Suite did for them and the entire queer community and their own place in that. It's something that we will continue to do and make sure that even after we can't do these parties anymore, that we've laid the groundwork so that work can continue. So I knew you were going to be talking about traveling queer parties for this story, right? But I guess naively... I didn't anticipate how much the traveling queer party, like as a thing, as a form, right, 
would be so connected to a response to anti-Black racism, to massage noir, throughout its whole history. Yeah. And I think, like, even though energy is no longer focused specifically on Black women, it's a party for queers and their fam. There's still kind of that rootedness and that history that shows up with an intention to focus on folks who are the most marginalized. It is a collective release, a collective exhale, a collective breath that we take as a community. Every time we breathe, every time we twerk, every time Nuck If You Buck comes on, every time a shot of Hennessy is taken, every time someone is feeling liberated in that space, we're getting closer to liberation collectively as Black people. All of this makes me think back to Marina, our question asker. Because hmm. we actually invited her to come out with us to a party for this story. But she felt the way I imagine a lot of people are feeling right now. Like, that sounds great. That sounds like so much fun, and I would love to be part of that. But with COVID cases rising, going to an indoor party just doesn't feel safe for me right now. Of course, that makes so much sense. And to me, this really feels like the place of struggle for the queer party scene today. Absolutely. You know, everything we've been talking about in this episode ties back to the way that movement building is always building on itself and looking towards the future. When we talk about queer liberation, collective liberation... That needs to include moving towards spaces that are truly accessible for disabled folks and immunocompromised folks. There's always more work to do. So we've just got to continue to create the spaces we want to be part of. Thanks so much to Ari Mejia for her reporting and production on this episode. It was my pleasure. And thanks to DJ Lady D for some of the house music we used in this story. Love you, Lady D. You're the best. Curious City first ran this story back in 2022. Tori Rice still runs Small World Collective, and Jay Rice has since moved on from the group. He's the director of communications at Brave Space Alliance and continues to work on creative projects in the Chicago queer community. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. The show is produced by Joe Dassault and Jason Mark, and I'm the digital and engagement producer. Susie Ahn edits the show. Adriana Cardona-McGeegott is our reporter. Curious City is a production of WBEZ Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. I'm Maggie Civit. Thanks for listening. DJ, here we go. DJ, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. DJ, here we go. Before we start the show... We here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.